Welcome to Eurodollar University with Jeff Snyder. My name is Emil Kalinowski, and we are going to be talking about the yield curve inversion. You must have heard about it. No? All you've heard about is the Federal Reserve raising rates? Well, we're going to talk about both and what it might mean. Jeff Snyder is the head of the what is the head of? The head of the what, Jeff? <laughs> head of global research at Alhambra Investments and Monetary Sleuth, a plumber of the euro dollar, all sorts of other titles. Jeff, we're going to be going to your article that you posted a few days back. It's at the Alhambra Investments blog post. The title of it is Another One Inverts, The Retching Cat Reaches Treasuries, May, no, March 14th. 2022. Where shall we begin? 2005, 2018, present day, Jay Powell? I think we have to start with the retching cat, first of all, because that was an incredibly popular thumbnail. Of course, David Parkins, the uh, our incredible illustrator who basically brought your, what, what you said last week, he, he really brought it to life just in time for Jay Powell's uh, FOMC meeting and press conference, because I thought that was a perfect representation. You know, I was a little bit unsure about it when you first thought it up and first said what you were thinking about last week, but uh, I think it worked out well, and I think the public responded to it favorably. So the retching cat is probably the right place to start here. Yes, if anyone's ever had a cat and they've seen a cat return a hairball back to sender, there's this like a percussion wave that begins at the tail and then as if the cat is trying to slough off its skin and it resembles, I've always thought this ever since I was a little boy, the inversion of a yield curve. Now we've <laughs> been talking about the inversion of the Euro dollar curve since December 1st, 2021, but most people don't talk about that, right? Euro dollar, we don't wanna talk about it. If we're in the mainstream financial press, we don't even wanna to touch that subject. But unfortunately for the orthodoxy, in economics, they do have to talk about the treasury yield curve when it inverts, because I don't remember the name, but in the 1980s, there was a study by a gentleman who looked at the predictability of recessions in the United States and said, well, you know what? The stock market's not doing a very good job, is it? But the bond market is. And he identified a couple of points where if the high yield is the long-term yield, long-term bonds are lower than the short-term yields, well, that suggests that something may be happening in the economy, that the long-term investors don't believe in the future that the uh, establishment sees the Federal Reserve. Jeff, I've messed that up a lot. I'm going to go grab some more, Sherry. You explain to the people what we're trying to say. I don't think you messed it up at all, Emil. And I think you, what you said is exactly correct. You know, the way we look at the yield curve is that it should be upward sloping because upward sloping is beautiful. Upward sloping is optimism. Upward sloping says, hey, things are going to be good in the future. Things are going to be better than the future. And rather than what mainstream economics says about, you know, low rates are stimulus and high rates are, are restrictive of growth. no. The higher rates forward in time, the better off we are, the better off the uh, market thinks that the economy will be, the financial system, how healthy the financial system, how error free it will be into the future. So upward sloping, always and ever. It doesn't have to be very steeply upward sloping, but upward sloping from front to back. And so any interruption in that modestly upward sloping, beautiful shape is something you need to pay attention to. And we've been conditioned to believe that 
we need to only pay attention to the most extreme parts of the curve, whether the very front end and its relationship to the very long end. So either the two-year, 10-year calendar spread or even a three-month, 10-year calendar spread. But outside of those, any place along the curve where we break from that beautiful upward sloping shape is something we need to pay attention to. Jeff, if I remember correctly, most people will be saying that what has inverted recently is the 7 and 10, but didn't the 20 and 30 invert several weeks ago? Now, you just said- Months should... ago. Months ago. That was way back in October. Okay. So maybe there's not as much liquidity in the 30, 20 area, so we could discount it or no, we need to take that into account. No, the 20 to 30, I mean- that hasn't been a place where inversion has been recently, but historically speaking, go back into the 1990s, and it was not uncommon to see the 20-year yield above the 30-year yield for exactly what you just said, Emil. There's a little bit less trading liquidity in the 20. So, so though there was times where you could say, this is more of a technical issue than it is an economic signal or financial signal, where just you know uh, traders and investors demand a little bit more extra yield to hold the, specifically the 20 rather than the 30. Whereas we get into the seven year versus the 10 year, that's kind of a different story because the seven year is an incredibly important benchmark rate because most mortgage bonds and most mortgage securities, the average duration is around seven years. So it's not like the seven year treasury is like the 20, which is kind of forgotten, sort of a niche way out of the way, uh, not much activity. The seven year is right in the middle, right in the center of the entire financial system. So it is a very important benchmark rate. And if the seven-year yield is a little bit above the 10-year, of course, the 20 and 30, what is that really telling us? And of course, that's what happened starting last Friday, which was, was March 11th. I, I can't remember mm-hmm. the date, but Friday, March 11th, for the first time, the seven-year went above the 10-year. And it was like, okay, now we have Eurodollar futures, and now we have the U.S. Treasury yield curve doing very strange things. But they're doing the same strange thing. So that's even more compelling. That's right. When you wrote this article on the 14th, you were talking about just the 7 and 10. But since then, today is the 18th, we've had the five-year invert relative to the 10-year. Is that right, Jeff? Not relative to the seven-year, but relative to the 10-year. It inverted as well for what? Most of the day, the trading day or... Did it end at the close inverted? Where are we most recently? And does it matter, Jeff? Does it matter? Or is the picture, the message been sent? Yeah, for the uh, five-year and even the three-year, they were inverted Wednesday. Now, Wednesday, of course, was the FOMC meeting. That was when Jay Powell announced that the Fed was expected to do one rate hike a meeting for the rest of this year and probably into next year before sometime they, they stop and turn around and say, okay, the long-run rate is what it is. So. The hawkish Fed on Wednesday and almost immediately the five-year yield went above the 10-year. The three-year yield went above the 10-year. So intraday during the afternoon, we had had the curve going upside down right in the middle of it, which was an incredibly powerful signal that the market's just rejecting what the Fed is selling. That's what I was going to ask you. Yes, has this ever happened live, real time? No, this, as we talked about, I think, in a previous episode last week, the way the curve is shaped and the way it's behaved over the last several months, going back to October, I can't remember a time when it has ever looked like this, where it's been so incredibly steep up front and then almost like a 90 degree angle going to the back. And now, of course, 
as it goes in the 90 degree angle toward the longer term yields, it's it's bumping up and down and inverted and all over the place. So we've gone from a somewhat nice and optimistic, but really low yield curve last year to this ugly, distorted, twisted thing that is, is sending all sorts of really negative signals. Now, I wanted to point out that the five-year and the 10-year are no longer inverted. At least they weren't until this morning. They started to invert yet again. So it's, it's probably just a matter of time before this inversion sticks, like the seven-year and 10-year had flirted with each other and had matched each other at several points along the way in the weeks leading up to last week. So it's not so much that, you know, it inverted and then it, then it went away and now everything's fine. It's that the curve is doing these things at all and that the progression in the curves, euro dollar futures as well as yield curve, is absolutely clear because this has been happening for months uh, and really going back a, quite a long time into 2021. So it's the progression of things that continue to get louder and louder and louder to the point now where we're seeing, you know, the middle parts of the yield curve be inverted in a really, really unique way. Jeff, you were on a podcast recently, a YouTube live streaming spectacular with Joseph Wang, the Fed guy. And there was a moment where you were saying, well, the bond market is saying this in contradicting what the Federal Reserve is hoping to do. And if I heard Mr. Wang say it correctly, he said, well, the bond market is like other markets. We shouldn't give too much place of pride to bond markets that, you know, look at the stock markets, they can get out of whack. Uh, investors make investment decisions based on fundamental reasons. And there may not be a message with respect to the Federal Reserve. It's just what is happening in that market. Is that what you heard? And the reason I wanted to ask is he, he was saying, well, we shouldn't look to this market as being very important because it's made mistakes in the past. In this article here, you gave us two examples where the market didn't make a make mistake, 2005 and 2018. What did he say? Tell me if I'm being unfair. I don't no, want to it's, be. It's, Emil, it's a common, as you know, it's a common criticism of the bond market all the time. People who are uh, invested in the Federal Reserve narrative and invested in the myth and the mystique of the Fed being the center of the universe, economically, financial money, all of those things, they say, well, you can't rely on the bond market because the Fed buys bonds. It's a non-economic buyer that has, that has essentially messed up the fundamental signal from interest rates. And a lot of them go even further and say, look, the Fed has bought a lot of bonds because they want rates to be low. And therefore, rates are low because the Fed wants them that way. And if the rates are low because the Fed wants them, because the Fed buys the bonds, therefore, we can't rely on any of their signals. They're all messed up. And what Joseph Wang did is he went a little, he went a step even further and said, it's not just the Fed. It's also banks, financial institutions, pension funds, and insurance companies who have been, quote unquote, forced into holding U.S. treasuries by regulations such as Basel III, Dodd-Frank, and a whole bunch of, a whole host of other things specific to each industry. So what he's saying is that it's not just the Fed buying bonds for non-economic reasons. It's all of these other financial institutions who are doing the same thing. And my pushback on that was, of course, history. Yes, those things are true. The insurance companies have to hold a lot of U.S. treasuries because, number one, regulations. But number two, they were around during 2008 and saw what happened when you were an insurance company like AIG who was doing stupid things with other forms of collateral and credit. And so... They didn't really need Dodd-Frank or Basel III to tell them maybe should pre, maybe they should look a little bit harder at their own assets. By and large, as you were getting to, Emil, it's history. We can rely on the yield curve regardless of what the Fed is doing, regardless of these other reasons of what people are holding U.S. Treasuries for. 
because history has shown bond signals match with uh, reality. They make predictions that have been validated. As you were just alluding to, we saw in 2006, the yield curve like the euro dollar futures curve inverted. Now that was before QE, but still back then, Insurance companies and pension funds were sure as hell holding a lot of U.S. treasuries, as was the Federal Reserve. I don't think people probably realize that back in the middle 2000s, the Fed owned about 10 percent of all the U.S. treasuries in existence. So they held a lot of U.S. government bonds back then, too. And still, the yield curve said, hey, 2005, 2006, we're not agreeing with you, Mr. Greenspan and Mr. Bernanke. You guys are hiking rates because you think inflation is is the primary risk to the global economy. We're holding on to our longer term treasury yields because we think you're wrong. And eventually we're going to end up with a deflationary case, which is, of course, what happened. And then again, 2018, maybe the best example, especially for a recent example, the Fed had bought a bunch of bonds, even though they were doing quantitative tightening and balance sheet runoff in 2018. Middle of the year, euro dollar futures invert. And then by the end of the year, the yield curve had flattened, even though nominal rates at the long end had risen, the yield curve had still flattened. And then it inverted along with euro dollar futures, which said, you're wrong, Jay Powell. You think inflationary risks are, again, the primary threats to the economy. We think it's deflationary risk. And so we're going to own longer term treasuries, regardless of the price of, of assets up at the front end, regardless of the interest rates of anything that's going on at the front end of each curve. So those inversions, uh, they did predict what ended up happening afterward. And so... Even though the Fed has bought a lot of bonds, even though, you know, there's regulations requiring certain financial institutions to hold liquid reserves in in the form of treasuries and the like, there is still a fundamental signal in the yield curve that has been validated as recently as just a couple years ago. So I don't think we should be ignoring these signals, especially since even though, you know, there's all sorts of artificial reasons for participants buying and selling in these markets, there's still huge marketplace. There's still the deepest, most liquid markets in the world. And so there is fundamental, very realistic value and very realistic signals and information to be gleaned from how the curves behave and the shapes that they take. I hear an echo of Richard Fisher in what you're discussing, the head of the Dallas Federal Reserve. And was it in 2013, Jeff, if I remember correctly, where during the meeting minutes, he said, why are we buying these things that the market is buying anyway, to your point of, you know, if an, even if the Fed wasn't there, even if the regulations weren't there, Fisher was of the opinion that people are running towards these things anyhow. Why? Well, there's a whole other show. Well, is it, Emil, isn't that kind of our story today? Because remember, last year, all we heard was, oh, the interest rates are low because the Fed is buying tons of its QE, mass, massive QE6. But once they taper, once they stop buying, once they get to balance sheet runoff, you watch, interest rates are going to skyrocket. And what has happened instead? Interest rates have, yes, they've gone up in the long end of the yield curve, but not by all that much. I mean, even at 225, which was the high on Wednesday, that's still only about half a basis or half a percent higher than it was in March of 2021. That's not a very big move at all. And so Despite the fact that the Fed is no longer a heavy buyer in the marketplace, long-term bond yields have hung in there relatively well to the point there, they're actually now distorting the curve where we have all of these inversions taking place. So there is demand over and above the Fed. And, and to continue on the thought that you just had, Emil, Richard Fisher, I believe it was 2011, talking about Operation Twist, but the, the point is exactly the same. Why are we buying bonds that the market has already been buying heavily? And that's what we see time and time again. 
Central bankers, despite the fact that they want to dismiss the bond signal, they know for a fact that QE hasn't had much or any impact on bond yields at all. The study after study after study has shown, you know, we highlighted one a, a few weeks back, maybe a month ago, where the uh, calculated effect was 15 basis points for a $600 billion quantitative easing program, which is, it's so underwhelming as to be irrelevant. So here we have, uh, again, in 2022, with all these curves sending powerful signals, at the very same time, the Fed's not really in the market. In fact, the Fed's gonna start running off its balance sheet very soon, and yet long-term bond yields, they're telling you something here. Careful listeners will have heard Jeff say QE6, and will be writing angry letters saying that we're only on QE4 or 5 or something like that. Well, in some of Jeff's recent writings at the Humber Investments website, he lists them out in a graph, not lists them, but he identifies them in a graph. You've done that several times, so you'll be able to count how we've gotten to actually six. And Jeff, I can't wait for you to update the Japanese QE count, which I think is at 26 or 27. Unbelievable. Now we have gotten several very, very angry letters from the audience. Sometimes people call these listener requests when we were on, when we had radios and people will call up and say, oh, play this song and dedicate it to my love. All right. Well, that's what we're going to do now. It's going to be a mix of angry letters and dedication. This dedication is going out to Stuart on Twitter, at Stuart8443807072. And here's what he asked, Jeff. Hi, Jeff. What would be your top three books to read out of the books you have read over your career that have helped you? Great work. And Emil, do please stop. Oh, never stop. Do please never stop. <laughs> top three books, Jeff. You do read stop. books. Yeah, I know. That's the sad part is that, uh, you know, I've read a few books. You know, uh, we talked about it, I think, last week or the week before. Paul Einzig's Euro, Euro Bonds. Or what was the name of it? I can't even remember the title. Um, Foreign Loans in Europe? That's the one. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting <laughs> read. Uh, I also, you know, I think the best book that I've probably ever written is this one, which is Milton Friedman's A Monetary History, which, I mean, you don't have to be a dyed-in-the-wool monetarist or Chicago School adherent to see the value in somebody who is thinking outside the box attempting to do what we're actually doing here, which is to redefine the monetary understanding of the, mon the intellectual framework for understanding money from and bringing it into somewhat of a, you know, at the time you wrote it in 1963, bringing it into the 20th century, whereas we're trying to bring monetary understanding into the 21st century. And so the way Friedman and Anna Schwartz did the a monetary history of 1963 is a powerful description of kind of how to think outside about how to think about these principles in a very scientific fashion. So to me, a monetary history, I mean, there's a lot I don't like about it. There's a lot I do like about it, but it's, it's one of the most powerful books I think has ever been written. I was looking at my books here. No one asked me, but uh, one book that I'm reading right You're now is- You're far more is... well-read than I am. So if anybody's looking for book, book uh, recommendations, those, they should ask you. Well, it's mostly erotica, Jeff. <laughs> of course. If not, then it's some kind of wretching cat illustration book. The book I'm reading right now, which the audience may be wondering where I don't see it in Emil's back bookshelf, is uh, Joseph Wang's Central Bank 101. And the reason you don't see it in the back is because I've taken it to the bedroom. Yes, that's where I'm reading it. Make that of what you will. All right, Jeff, let's go and go on to part two. I've, I'm flustered saying I've taken Joseph's book to the bedroom. Okay, we'll move on to part two. Thanks, Jeff. <laughs> 